college football is back. Most of the ACC kicks off this weekend. The Hokies and the Hoos, they'll wait a little longer to take the field against each other. William & Mary cuts seven sports. We'll hit all that and more this week on Teal & Barber. Welcome in to episode 19 of Teal and Barber, the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Richmond.com's Virginia Tech, UVA, and ACC sports podcast. I'm Mike Barber, ACC beat writer for the paper, and joining me here, as always, is my co-host, the 13-time sports writer of the year, the Virginia Sports Hall of Famer, David Teal. You guys will notice we're back to dropping new podcasts weekly since gasp the the college football season is is actually here we made it so uh we're gonna do a weekly thing david that that makes sense doesn't it i think so as long as this as long as the season continues <laughs> and uh, we all have our fingers and toes crossed for that david dropping the asterisk on our weekly <laughs> proclamation <laughs> weekly as long as uh just got through the the Labor Day weekend. If you're if you're playing this when it drops on Tuesday, so David, how how did you and the family spend the holiday weekend? I think probably Mike, much like yours, just preparing for today's first day of virtual learning. <laughs> there was a lot of nervous energy around the house as we we finished the little uh, nook where where our daughter is doing her her learning. And you know, it's funny. My wife had a really good idea. She said she asked our daughter, "Is there anything?" that you have in your classroom that you'd like to have here at home? Is there anything that's special to your classroom that's missing? And our daughter told us that there's a board on the wall and the students get to count down the hundred days of class. And and each time they put up an apple or a leaf or whatever the theme of your board is. And uh, her class theme this year is sharks. So my wife made a giant aquarium board and I sat and drew and cut out <laughs> little sharks and so every day she's going to put a shark up on the wall and try to give these kids a, a little a little sense of normal and a little sense of fun with what they're doing very good you're a far better parent than I <laughs> well you've got the older child tiny teal's <laughs> a little more independent and, and can handle this for for our first grader it's a it's a huge shock to the system so uh, especially because we usually spend all day telling her to get off her Kindle, get off her TV, get away from the screens. And now we're uh, strapping her in a chair and say, stare at this for, for three hours. Yeah, I hear you. My wife just this second texted me with an OMG. We are doing legit schoolwork on day one. She has them <laughs> breaking down a sentence. Wow. Oh, tiny tail hitting the ground running. <laughs> our, our first graders are learning how to use Zoom and how to raise their hands and mute themselves, which honestly is a skill that I think many sports writers could could use a, a refresher course based on what we've seen in our Zoom interviews. No question. Now, David, you wrote a column over the weekend kind of extolling the, the grand return of sports to our, our television sets, to our lives, uh, from the NBA and the NHL playoffs, baseball games, pretty thrilling Kentucky Derby, a wild tennis disqualification at the Whoa. U.S. Open. You don't see that every day. <laughs> How nice is it just to have all of that back? Mike, I think I speak for probably 99% of our of our audience and certainly for the two of us. It's awesome. And it, it doesn't have to be the Super Bowl of, of any sport. It can be background noise 
or it can be an edge of your seat playoff game. It's just nice to have it back as part of our routine because our routines have been turned upside down for six months now. And, and my wife and I talk about this all the time. What makes it so daggone difficult some days is that there's no finish line in sight. Mm-hmm. We don't know when this is going to end. And sports, bless its collective heart, has come back into our lives. Yeah, you know what? Marshall, Army, they won by a combined 101 to 0. And I had those games on the TV the whole time. You know, had this been two years ago, I'm channel surfing. But, uh, you know, those games stayed up. And and I'm glad you said that about the background noise because I'll leave a Yankee game up on the TV when I'm doing something else. And it it just, it feels a little more normal that when I walk past the TV, uh, there's a baseball game on it. There's a football game on it. There's a tennis match on it. Uh, It's comfort. It's it's comfort food for for us right now uh, as we go through this. No question. And you, you mentioned the blowouts over the weekend, and last night wasn't much better. <laughs> you know, l- l- last night we both figured we'd be in Atlanta, right? For yes. UVA, Georgia. Of course, that game did not happen and will not happen. And instead, it was BYU Navy on, on Labor Day night, and the poor midshipmen, whew, that was a beat down. <laughs> And yet, much like me, I'm guessing, I left it on for most of that. I, mean, I was doing other things. I maybe wasn't glued to the screen, but I loved the fact that if I did glance up, there there was some, albeit not great, there was some football being played. Yep, some, some college football. And then if you did want to channel surf, you had some pretty good NBA playoff games. Yes, sir. And so the ACC will join the party. The ACC, uh, their football season kicks off this weekend. Now, Neither the Hokies nor the Hoos will will be in action yet, but 10 league teams are starting their season off. And in that number, I'm I'm counting member for the moment, (laughs) Notre Dame. David, before we get into the specific matchups, which is going to be so fun to to dive into, Uh, opening games can be a bit ragged, a a little bit ugly. Ask Navy, right? Um, This year, no spring ball. Um, All this COVID uncertainty, maybe worse this year than than other years. How game ready do you think some of these teams are going to be? Not very. (laughs) And I I was on a Zoom yesterday, actually, Mike, with Manny Diaz, the Miami coach whose team kicks off everything Thursday night down in South Florida against UAB with the Hurricanes plus one game. And the one thing he mentioned was and this was after I guess Miami had its final preseason scrimmage Friday or Saturday night, I forget which. But he's most concerned about tackling <laughs> and wrapping up and getting people to the ground because there hasn't been a whole lot of that in camp and he just wonders how that's gonna translate to game day. It's a it's a catch twenty two, and we're going to get into this topic a little bit more later. So I don't want to go too deep into it. But coaches were very cognizant of trying to stay healthy. There are going to be questions about depth and availability. They didn't want injuries in camp, especially when you consider that some of these guys weren't in the best shape or the usual shape coming back after uh, the COVID break. So that is going to be a, a thing to watch. Of hey, if this is your first 
real live tackling action, your first really go get it, you know, how is that going to look? It's going to look like football, though, in, in some way, shape, or form. So, David, of the of the matchups that the ACC is giving us on on their first week, uh, what's the most intriguing game to you? Well, Vegas doesn't much like any of them. No. I mean, all all the numbers are double digit spreads, so the, the the sharpies are not expecting a whole lot of drama this weekend. But as as I look at the schedule. Mike, the the one game that I would find most intriguing would be Florida State, Georgia Tech. Number one, because that's the lowest spread on the board at Florida State by 12. You have the debut of Mike Norvell with the Seminoles, who's coming over from Memphis, where he succeeded Justin Fuente when Fuente came to Virginia Tech. And Georgia Tech starting its second season – under Jeff Collins, and can that offense, as it transi- continues the transition from Paul Johnson's option to a more pro-style attack, can it can it improve? Because it was among the FBS's worst last season. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go with one that's not. I don't expect to be competitive. <laughs> Wake Forest and Clemson. I, I don't think it's going to be close. I don't think Clemson's going to have any trouble, but. It's going to be a barometer game for me in the sense that I wonder if the COVID break, the lack of off-season conditioning programs, the lack of a spring, I wonder if it's a great equalizer, right? If some of these teams that are far and away superior to to their league opponents, um, if they've maybe come back to the pack. Now, I don't expect that to be the case, but I do think games like this will show that. You know, Wake Forest is good. It's a program that's been getting better. Uh, you know, they're under former Richmond coach Dave Clawson. Uh, but I'm curious, you know, does Clemson take a step back? Does everyone sort of kind of regress to a middle ground because of the, the wackiness of, of preparation? It's a very intriguing question. Clemson's a 33-point <laughs> favorite. And oh, by the way, the winning or the combined margin of the last two years between Clemson and Wake Forest, one hundred fifteen to six. Wildly, wildly competitive matchup. <laughs> you can you can see why I'm so intrigued to, to watch the Deacons and the Tigers take the field. And and, and 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 oh, by the way, poor Wake Forest with this amended ACC schedule. The only team in the league that will play the top six teams in the preseason ACC poll, Clemson, Notre Dame, Virginia Tech, North Carolina, Miami, Louisville. Nobody else plays all six. And I don't want to get off on an aside, but that's one of those things that, and I know it's nobody's fault. It's just the way it happens. But when people talk about momentum for a program that's building, you know, Wake's been building, Wake's been improving. And uh, a schedule like that, it can make you at least on paper, take a step back in a hurry. Yeah, it, it sure can. And you know, Wake Forest has four consecutive winning seasons under Dave Clawson. The last time the Deacons had five consecutive 
was 1944 <laughs> to 48. And before you ask, no, I was not covering the league back then. I was lining up the joke to say that was your first season. <laughs> yeah, I know. I had a teed up for you. I appreciate it. Uh, well, let's talk then about, you know, I, I think we think Clemson is going to be really good this year. Other ACC teams, who are you most curious about this season? Notre Dame, just because of the uniqueness of the Fighting Irish being in a conference. First time ever competing for a conference title, playing 10 ACC opponents on a schedule, hopefully. The notion out there that maybe, maybe, I don't think so, but maybe the experience is so positive that the school administration and athletics administration rethinks centuries literally of football independence and joins the league all in permanently. To me, that's that's the biggest subplot of the entire season. I enjoyed when you retweeted the the Notre Dame account. Yes. They had painted the ACC logo on the field and said, felt cute, might delete later. And David, you seized on the word might. Might. Yeah, that was such a troll by Notre Dame. I, it was great. You know, bless them. That was, it was very good social media. I love it. Yeah, my, my question when you think about Notre Dame is, I'm curious, and I think I said this last week, but I'm curious, is Notre Dame closer to Clemson? Yeah. Or is it closer to, in my mind, North Carolina, the next team, or whoever you have as the, the next team in that pecking order? Um, which is the bigger gap? And, and going in, what do you think? What's the bigger gap? Is it Notre Dame is closer to Clemson, or Notre Dame is closer to your three, four, five teams in the ACC? I think Clemson is so far ahead and shoulders above that the Irish are probably closer to to Carolina and and Louisville or Virginia Tech, Miami, who, whoever you want to lump in that next group. And you just named my, my two most intriguing teams for me, I think, are North Carolina and Louisville. I, I think mm-hmm. Louisville um, just seemed like it really was headed in a great direction with the coaching change there and what they're doing. And, um, you know, last year really kind of opened our eyes a little bit about maybe what they can do. And, and North Carolina, a lot of hype. I think it's deserved, right? I mean, Sam Howell, great, great offensive players. Mac Brown has talked on these Zoom calls about uh, what he's seen from the defensive backs, the secondary, how strong that group is. There's a lot of hype around Carolina. David, does it belong there? Yeah, I, I think so. You know, I, I believe Carolina won its last three games of 2019 against Mercer, granted, one double A. NC State, granted, bad year, and then Temple in its bowl. Tar Heels won each of those last three games by at least 31 points. (laughs) I mean, they closed strong. And Sam Howell, as you mentioned, unbelievable true freshman year. He threw multiple touchdown passes in every game. And that's unheard of, especially from a rookie. And he's got a whole bunch of weapons back on the outside at running back. They could be really good on on that side of the ball. But let's not forget one thing. North Carolina has not won an ACC championship in football since 1980. That is a long time. Now, were you covering that? 
No, I was no. I was still I was still at JMU. <laughs> I was going to get that joke in somewhere. There you go. So North Carolina, they're opening with Syracuse in, mm-hmm. in a game that features a lot of offense, and that that brings us nicely to to this week's who you got. Thank you, Mike. We've got football this weekend. How about that? There are four ACC conference games this weekend on the slate. Pick one, surefire, ironclad winner. Who you got, David? Well, Dean, we've we've already gone down the Clemson-Wake Forest route, and you can use R-O-U-T-E or R-O-U-T, given its history against Wake Forest. But I'll give you another one. Notre Dame is at home against Duke. The Fighting Irish are ranked. They're about a three-touchdown favorite. No ACC team, ranked or otherwise, has ever beaten a ranked Notre Dame team in South Bend. Duke is not going to be the first. You know, Notre Dame was going to be my pick, but since you took that path, I'm going to go back to Carolina. I think that, like we said, I think the hype is deserved. Um, I know they're one of those programs that seems a little bit unpredictable. (laughs) So picking them as your ironclad lock maybe isn't a great call. But I think North Carolina is going to send a message um, week one. I think they've done a nice job handling the the, the pandemic. You know, the campus had real issues when they kind of reopened. And I think they circled the wagons pretty well there. And I I think they're going to be ready. Um, We talked about Sam Howell. We talked about what we like. For me, it's that secondary, though. That secondary, I think, is a good matchup. It will contain Syracuse, that Dino Babers offense. Um, I like North Carolina to open its year with a big victory. Yeah, I I wouldn't be surprised to see the Tar Heels cover what is a 21-point spread. Uh, I, I just think the orange is, is going to really struggle this year. Uh, even after you know, they had 10 wins in 2018, dipped the last year. And I, I think that decline is probably going to con- continue in 2020. That makes sense. Now, as I mentioned in the opening, the Hokies and the Hoos, they don't kick off in week one. So that's why we, we left them out. We weren't ignoring them. Uh, they, do, they do face each other in week two. So that means after a 15-year Commonwealth Cup drought, UVA has to defend that sucker less than a year later. That that's crazy? sort of an unfair break for the Cavaliers, no? <laughs> yes, it, it is. But you talk about getting your players' attention early now. You know, playing playing your rival in the opening week of the season. I, I I believe I have this right, Mike. In 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 various seasons, it's been the opener for one of the teams, but this is only the second time that it's the season opener for both of them. And and that time was in 1972, and I believe UVA won six nothing with a touchdown late in the fourth quarter. And it's it's going to be. I mean, wh- why not? 2020 is already off the charts bizarre. So let's just start a season that's going to be that way with a matchup that's. Usually at the end of the season, turn it upside down. The year's already upside down anyway. <laughs> you know, I, I did a ACC Network radio th- this weekend, and that was one of the things they asked was, you know, what do you think about starting the season that way? And I said, I hate it. I don't ever want it to be the regular, the norm. But for this year, I'm on board because 
one, I don't know if we're going to get through a whole year and, and I don't mm-hmm. want to be the, the, the naysayer, but, um, and, and people need things to look forward to. And, and right now, you're right that, that in camp for these players, it's been something that's made them focus. It's something that motivates them. It, it makes everything a little sharper knowing you're getting ready for a rivalry. But for fans, just the fact that, hey, it's football's coming back and maybe you're a little lukewarm. Maybe you're not sure what to expect. You know, no fans in the stands and all of the things that are going to be different. But then you tell me, hey, I've got my rivalry game week one. <laughs> that kind of gets the juices going a little extra. And I think maybe anybody that was a little apprehensive or a little doubting Thomas about what's happening, maybe gets them on board. So for this year and this year only, uh, sign me up for this as, as an opener. Intriguing matchup. Let's take a, a look at the teams for a little you know, compare and contrast here. Let's start on the defensive side of the ball where, where David, I, I think you agree with me. Both these teams look to be really strong. Yeah, I I think they 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 should both be better than a, a year ago. You know, v- Virginia I believe averaged yielded about twenty seven points a game. The Hokies were a, a tick better. Neither of them ended their seasons the way they would have liked to on the defensive side, but with so many returning starters for both programs, you would think improvement would would be uh, on on the menu for 2020, even with the much-discussed transition from Bud Foster to Justin Hamilton at Virginia Tech for the defensive coordinator spot. Yeah, let's let's start there. And and I spoke with Robert and I, the offensive coordinator at, at UVA this morning on one of those Zoom sessions, and I asked him, I said, how do you prepare for a new defensive coordinator at Virginia Tech? And he kind of laughed, and his answer was basically, you know, what's new? He he expects that Virginia Tech is, is going to look a lot like Virginia Tech has always looked. In fact, his quote was, he said, I think I'm safe to assume that what they're doing there has some deep roots. And <laughs> I think I'm safe to assume that they're confident that those coaching structures, defensive alignments, assignments are sound. Old coach perspective it would be the worst thing they could do to junk what they're doing on defense. That's what we expect, right, David? They're they're going to be, for lack of a better term, a Bud Foster defense? I think for the most part. Although I'm intrigued, Mike, to see what type of changes. And, and maybe it's so subtle that our untrained eyes don't notice it from, from the press box. Maybe you need to be a little more steeped in X's and O's. To, to, to get it. But Tracy Clay's especially, and also Bill Tierlink, who comes from the NFL as a defensive line coach, and Clay's, who's been a power five defensive coordinator. I'm interested to see what tweaks they might bring to the scheme. And again, we wouldn't know nomenclature uh, of, of the defense. Yeah, and you know, that's a great point because those guys were brought in for their experience. But I wouldn't overlook the the tweaks that (laughs) Justin Hamilton has in mind because you know this. Every assistant coach you've ever spoken to, they are supportive of the head coach. They are following the plan. They're on board. But in the back of their mind, they, they have ideas that, you know, if it was my program, I'd do this. If it was my scheme, I'd do this. And, you know, the biggest thing may be the play calling itself. 
right? When are you mixing up coverages? When are you pressing? When are you playing back? When are you blitzing and from where? And yes, Justin Hamilton is a Bud Foster disciple. And yes, I think the the mindset of the defense isn't going to change the the basic plan of what Virginia Tech wants to do but what does Justin Hamilton dial up on on third and seven as opposed to just what popped into Bud Foster's mind I think there is going to be a Justin Hamilton stamp on this defense and I think that that can be a good thing not that not that Bud Foster became predictable because he was so successful for so long but it's a little bit harder to gauge tendencies of a guy whose only coordinator gig was at the NAIA level. Absolutely. There's no film out there, Mike, (laughs) of of Justin Hamilton's defense at at UVA-wise and and other places. I'm going to have to scan uh, Google and YouTube now to to see if that's true. Uh, What do you like about Virginia Tech defensively? What what do you think is, is strong there? Well, I think the linebackers, you know, with Hollifield and Ashby, and if you want to include the whips, then Shamari Connor. I mean, that's a pretty stout group right there. Yeah, and I would say don't overlook the secondary because Caleb Farley opted out, and I think there was sort of this sense of, you know, ooh, well, that's that's really going to hurt, and certainly it is. Caleb Farley is potentially a first-round draft pick, but I love what the Hokies still have in their defensive backfield. I think Divine Diablo and Devin Hunter, they look like NFL safeties, and I'm just waiting for them to kind of have that year where, you know, we're talking about them as Cam Chancellor types, right, where we say, wow, those were not just guys who made plays, but guys who made difference-making plays. I think they're good enough at corner. You mentioned Chamari Connor. I think he fits in with Hunter and Diablo as a playmaker. I think that secondary, and with Hamilton being a defensive backs guy, I think that unit has a real chance to shine this year. Well, you didn't mention Jermaine Waller, a a, a corner who absolutely has all-conference potential. And we, we know precious little about Devin Taylor, the recently added graduate transfer from Illinois State, other than he had some pretty good numbers at the FCS level. Yeah, it was brought in, you know, after Farley opted out, but they also have Armani Chapman, the young mm-hmm. kid who played well. So, and Breon Murray, who they can use all over that secondary. So I really like, like that group. How about UVA? What do we like about this who's defense? I think they are very similar to Virginia Tech, not in, not in scheme, obviously. But what's not to like about Virginia's linebackers, correct? Yeah. I mean, especially on, on, the, on the outside with Noah Taylor and Charles Snowden. I mean, they're just – that's an exceptional tandem right there. I agree. And, and if you think about scheme – you know, the three, four, it's the idea is to be deep at linebacker, to have playmakers at linebacker. You're getting four of them on the field. I think Zane Zandier inside the toughness and leadership he brings, uh, but Snowden and Taylor on the edge. This was a team that was one of the best in the nation uh, in sacks last year. They really, Mm -hmm. they called it havoc. They really get after the quarterback. They're disruptive. I think that's going to happen again this year. And I think with the next level for Snowden Taylor, it's going to be even easier for for Nick Howell, for Kelly Papinga, the co-defensive coordinators, to get that pressure. I don't know that you're going to need to bring the corners, the safeties as much. I think you're going to be able to to get everything you need done with that front, and that makes it a very dynamic defense. Agreed. I, I, I wonder, Mike, about 
the defensive line now that Famui has opted out, you know, that's a lot of experience that that won't be back. I think we both have questions about their corners. That seems to be a position of need. But the safeties, again, much like Virginia Tech with Joey Blunt and, and Brenton Nelson presuming that he is healed completely from the injury that shelved him for the end of last season. I mean, Nelson was the 2017 ACC Defensive Rookie of the Year. <laughs> he's a good player. Yeah, there, there's a bunch of them now on that Virginia defense. And in, in year five for Bronco Mendenhall and that staff, they've they've collected some talent. And, you know, BYU defense was his calling card. So that makes sense. And let's flip over to the other side of the ball. And, and David, this this is where I think Virginia Tech has the edge, uh, at least on paper. We'll see how it plays out. But both teams have these deep, experienced offensive lines. <laughs> kind of a pleasant change from, from recent mm-hmm. years. I, I think they're both going to be pretty good up front. But, man, I think the Hokies have a ton of weapons at the skill positions. I'm thinking about Trey Turner. I'm thinking about James Mitchell. I'm thinking about the transfer running backs, who I got to write about you know, this week, uh, Raheem Blackshear, Khalil Herbert. Whose offense do you like better and why? Virginia Tech's, and I don't know that it's very close just because of the skill positions. Not only that, you've got an experienced returning starting quarterback in Hendon Hooker. You know, a couple guys you didn't mention among the skill players Tavion Robinson, mm-hmm. n- n- not only as a receiver, but as a punt returner. Uh, Jaden Payute, uh, who s- some of the fo- some of the social media photos we've seen, you know, he looks like a, a, a specimen. M- might he be somebody who can really help Turner uh, on the outside? So, yeah, I, I I think Virginia Tech, on paper, that offense is better. But you, you, you just wonder, neither Virginia nor Virginia Tech has had that go-to running back in such a long time. I mean, it's we're talking like a decade or more where you, you, you really think a guy, you know he's a horse and he's going to go get you a bunch of yards. Yeah, Virginia Tech's last thousand-yard rusher was Traven McMillan, and and I don't know that you necessarily felt felt that way about yeah, him. Yeah, I, I, I didn't. <laughs> you kind of looked up at the end of the year and said, "Oh, look at that! He's a thousand-yard rusher," yeah. uh, as opposed to him being a bell cow. You know, it's it's funny. I mentioned speaking to Robert and I this morning, and I asked him about, or he was asked about, uh, the idea of having a feature back and how important is it uh, to have a feature back. And he he kind of trolled Florida State, which uh, went six and seven last year despite having uh, Cam Akers, and he said. <laughs> You know, Florida State had that tailback, that first or second round tailback, and that didn't serve them all that well last year. So <laughs> nice. you, you can win. <laughs> oh, sure you can. Yeah, yeah I mean, but- heck, Virginia Tech won the Coastal in Justin Fuente's first season, essentially riding Gerard Evans. That's a, very true. A, a quarterback in Virginia won the Coastal last season riding Bryce Perkins. Yeah, so that- it, it can absolutely be done, but. Man, that's a, that's a nice security blanket to have. That's my big question about UVA offensively this year. Not that Brennan Armstrong isn't a good runner, but 
we heard a lot of talk from the linemen that you know they want to be more of a a run the ball with a running back type offense. They're not very deep at that position, and and they're not very established at that position. I think Wayne Talapapa looks like a good player, maybe not a great player. Uh, maybe he takes a big step. Uh, they brought in the, the transfer from Towson, who certainly could could have an impact. But um, you know they're still waiting to hear back on the next round of appeal for Ronnie Walker. That that position to me looks a little bit questionable right now at UVA. No question. And whether they can figure it out, I don't know. And, and Talapapa is very dependable between the tackles, but he is not going to pop one on you and go 40, 50 or, or more yards and give you that, that game-changing play. And again, that's what both programs have, have lacked um, going back for, for so, you know, you go back to David Wilson being the ACC <laughs> player of the year in, in, in 2011. You know, I'm looking at, at, at Virginia's numbers. I mean, the one I recall is Alvin Pierman back That's, in like 2004. I mean, we're going way back, guys. Pyramid was the first one I could think of, and that was, uh, I think, my second or third year in Virginia. So uh, it, it's a while, and it, it's it's the thing that I'm curious about most at Virginia. I'm encouraged about it at Tech because Raheem Blackshear, we've talked about his versatile skill set. Khalil Herbert was a very productive back at Kansas. Uh, even if it's not a one-guy situation, at Tech might have yeah. that that pop at running back with that duo. I, I, I believe you're right. And and King, you know, Keyshawn yeah. King showed some bursts last year. And if Jalen Holston is listening to this podcast, it's just more fuel to his fire yeah. coming back from the injury because he feels like, and, and probably rightfully so, the forgotten man in that room and a back that everybody was really high on when he was a freshman. And Tech has this thing going, and it, it's partially us in the media, some of it's fans, but people get really jazzed up and excited about the running backs, their first and second year. And if they're not the star right away, it's like they move on to the next guy. And, you know, maybe it's maybe now is the time for Jalen Holston to have that big year. It's uh, it's going to be interesting, both sides of the ball for both teams. And that discussion brings us to this week's Take It or Leave It. Thanks, Mike. It's, this is one of the toughest Take It or Leave It's uh, we've had. So get your crystal balls out because you're going to need it. All right, take it or leave it. The winner of the UVA Tech football game has a real shot at reaching the ACC title game. Take it or leave it, Mike. Yeah, I hate to be a downer because we're so excited for this matchup and this first game and the rivalry. And I think both these teams could be good this year, but I think there's a gap. I'm, I'm going to leave it because I think uh, Clemson is in the game. And then I think it's a question of Notre Dame how good are they? And if they're not there, I think North Carolina is the team that's waiting in the wings to, to kind of steal that spot. Uh, I think Louisville's next. So I've got a, a four, four teams uh, or three, I guess, ahead for the second spot, three teams ahead of them for the second spot. So whichever team wins uh, this rivalry matchup, I think they still have their work cut out for them to try to get into that title game. I'm going to leave it. I also am, am going to, to leave it, Mike. But but I will also tell everyone that if there is an ACC championship game, it would be great just to, just to get to mid-December and think that there is still college football and 
possibly even a college football playoff on the backside of those conference championship games, man, that would be very, very fortunate. But maybe they can pull it off. Do we dare to dream? And and David drops another asterisk (laughs) on one of our our points today. But uh, it's funny, when I put together the rundown for this show last night, uh, one of the things I thought about, and we'll probably hit it next week, so spoiler alert, was kind of looking at who we like (laughs) for this college football playoff. And then I thought to myself, am I getting a little a little ahead of myself? Let's get through Ooh. a week of games and yeah. see where we're at before I uh, before I drop it. Because right now, I mean, you got Marshall, you got Army, you got BYU, right? Those those three, after what I saw, have to be locks for the college football playoff. Absolutely. Hopefully the committee <laughs> listens to the podcast and takes heed. I bet they do. <laughs> now, one topic you and I both wrote about this week is the idea that with contact tracing, uh, COVID safety protocols, teams have to be prepared to play without some, maybe a good chunk of their rosters this year. It's a question of depth. It's a question of cross-training. And uh, that could be something that, you know, they find out Wednesday or, or even Friday of a game week, right? They're testing three times a week. You could find out Friday, hey, four of your wide receivers are out or five of your defensive backs are out. Tennessee had to cancel a football scrimmage last week. They had 44 players out. Now, those weren't all COVID. That was a mix of injuries and COVID, but they estimated more than half were COVID-related contact tracing situations. So, David, how can this work? Well, it, it's it's going to take a lot of roster management, juggling. The Big 12, Mike, has put in some numerical guidelines these are minimums now and you have the option to compete if you're a tick below the minimums but if you fall below 53 overall available players this includes walk-ons now seven offensive linemen five interior defensive linemen and one quarterback if you fall below any of those minimums, then you have the, I guess, right to say, we don't want to play, let's reschedule, or it's a no contest. The ACC thus far has elected a more nuanced approach without hard and fast numbers, which is the way Bronco Mendenhall prefers it. I think you got the same impression that I did from Justin Fuente last week. He'd like some more rigid guidelines. I, I sensed a real frustration from Justin last week in, in, in not knowing what it, what a roster is supposed to look like to be game fit. Yeah, Justin Fuente, Mac Brown, Dave Doran, they kind of all weighed in with that idea of, you know, they're here to coach football and they're going to get their players ready. And you've added the, the COVID and the safety, and, and that's a big part of their job now. And to put another thing on their plate to kind of be the ones to determine, because one, you know, if you're a coach, you want to play. Two, if you're a coach, you want to have a team that can compete. And the idea that there's no real guideline out there, it just leaves it um, a, a little bit iffy if you think about, well, what if you're a program that says, we can't play. We don't feel good about playing. Are you now going to be criticized, um, you know, publicly? Are you going to be kind of, you know, uh, criticized for saying, oh, you can't, why couldn't you play? You had enough to play. And if you had a little more guidelines there, it would take some pressure off 
these programs to say like, yeah, maybe we could play. We could move a defensive lineman over to offensive line. I mean, hey, David, when you were a kid and you went outside to play pickup games, pick up football, basketball, baseball, whatever it was, if you didn't have enough guys, you kind of moved around, right? The right fielder and the left fielder played in if you didn't have a center fielder. Uh, you know, if you didn't have enough wide receivers, maybe you only played with two linemen. You, you can do that in the backyard. You can't do that in the ACC. You can't do that at the FBS level. So I think these coaches deserve um, – a little bit more structure and guidance so that they don't have to feel like they're the ones making the decision on who can play and, and what teams can't. Well, I, I think you're right, Mike. And I believe that's why, at least if they're smart, and I believe they are, this is going to be left uh, to, to those above the, the head coach and probably the medical people as to, okay, is this roster fit to go and to to remove gamesmanship from the equation that is why the ACC is going to use a third party to conduct these Friday COVID tests just to remove any chance of messing with the results yeah and and not that anyone would do that although it's college athletics and we're always surprised by what people are willing to do but to take that off the discussion right so fans aren't talking about it so media isn't talking about it um get that get that off the table i like that you know one thing that coaches have talked about is um the cross training the idea Mm -hmm. of taking athletes who are your quarterback are your running back are your wide receiver uh, are a defensive back making sure that they're at least up to speed enough that maybe they could play another position. And, you know, at UVA, Bronco Mendenhall said he kind of breaks it into three groups. He's got the skill guys, the receivers, the the backs, the the corners. He's got the big skill guys, kind of your linebackers, your tight ends, maybe your fullbacks. Uh, and then he's got the big guys, <laughs> your offensive linemen, your defensive linemen. And making sure that there is some possibilities there. And, uh, you know, a bunch of coaches made this point, and it's a very good one. You don't want to throw too much on a kid who's already struggling to know his position to try to teach him yeah. to, right? If you've got a defensive end who keeps busting his assignment and losing contain, maybe this isn't a great week to teach him how to play right guard. <laughs> but at the same time, if you've got some guys who can handle it, give yourself some chess pieces that can can do a few other things. Well, I think that's why we're going to see players such as Keaton Thompson at UVA, Raheem Blackshear at Virginia Tech, and I'm sure there are others just in so many different roles this season. Number one, because they are versatile athletes, so you want them on the field. And number two, out of necessity, because the virus is going to dictate it. Yeah, I think that's just smart football. And I also think you're right. I think if there was no such thing as COVID, Raheem Blackshear would still be all over the field because I think we've heard that Justin Fuente really likes his versatile skill set. Now, that's been a lot of fun football and and good stuff. Sports are coming back, but it hasn't been all good news nationally. Hasn't been all good news here locally in the Commonwealth. Uh, William & Mary announced it was dropping seven sports. It's a cost-cutting move that's going to save the Tribe Athletic Department just over $3.6 million. It's, uh, if you haven't heard, it's, it's men's and women's swimming, men's and women's gymnastics, uh, men's indoor and outdoor track, and volleyball. 
That's 118 athletes, 13 coaches. David, you wrote a column about this. Take me through the decision, how hard it was, and was it kind of inevitable? Mike, those of us who have watched William and Mary over the years, I think, have always wondered when this day was coming because the school is so small and it's a public institution with about 6,300 undergraduates, almost 10% of whom are varsity athletes. Uh, William and Mary's 23 sports before these cuts were second only to UVA in the state. I mean, even Virginia Tech with multiple times as as many students as William and Mary didn't sponsor more sports. And you look at William and Mary's CAA peers, Delaware, James Madison, with three times the size student bodies, didn't have as many sports. So I it the the pandemic exacerbated everything and it it just seemed that there was no way for them to to continue to to have so many varsity sports yeah it's interesting i remember in, in 2006 i believe it was 2006 jmu uh, dropped nine sports mm-hmm. uh, they had a a massive um, you know offering considering the size of that school and um you know, at that moment, you kind of looked around the rest of the conference, you looked around the rest of the Commonwealth and thought, well, this has to be coming a, a few other places. And really, I think to William & Mary's credit, it, it, it didn't come in 2006 or 2007. And it, it does sting to think, well, maybe if we didn't have this pandemic, uh, if they could have continued, but it, it just didn't seem sustainable, uh, although it's certainly a noble, noble goal. It, it just didn't seem sustainable. Now, uh, Samantha Hughie, the athletic director, told me, and, and I don't have any reason to, to doubt her numbers. I, I did not go back and do the math. But she said that Wim Mary's CAA colleagues spend 32% more per student athlete per year than does William and Mary. And, you know, lost in all this, like is, is, is some of these programs, especially the, the, the swimming programs in William and Mary, which were saddled with terrible, I mean, terrible facilities. I mean, they don't even have a diving well, so they don't even compete in the diving portion of meets. William and Mary's men just won a sixth consecutive CAA championship. By the way, with not a dime of scholarship money. Yeah, that's that's one of the hardest things. I remember it in 2006 at JMU, and you're right about it with William & Mary now, is in no way um, is this a value judgment on the programs. In no way is this an evaluation of the job the coaches were doing. Uh, yeah. In no way is this a, a determination based on the athlete's performance. You know, this is about money. This is about dollars and cents. And that's the real world. And, and we're grownups. We get it. But um, it stinks. It, it stinks that uh, these programs that have done well, that have represented the school well, um, can't continue. It absolutely does. And to WM's credit, they will honor the scholarships for as, as long as the athletes want to remain enrolled in school. They will compete this academic year, the, the, the virus permitting, 
but then after this, that that's when they'll be cut. And you know, they were looking at over a three-year period a deficit of upward of ten million dollars, and that's just over three years. And that's it's especially when you're in a league, Mike, where you're not getting the fat TV checks, mm-hmm. and you're essentially relying on student fees. You know, each William and Mary student pays more than two thousand dollars a year in an athletic fee, and that accounts for more than half of the athletic department's budget. Yeah, and it, I guess at the end of the day, if you're William and Mary, you can shift now your money around to better support. You know, you talked about some of the scholarship restrictions. I, I know there's recruiting budget limitations on some of these programs. If you're willing to marry now, maybe you can fully support the programs that you are sponsoring. And, and that's the goal is, you know, bring it all to that point where you can throw your resources uh, fully behind the sports you do have instead of maybe spreading yourself a little too thin. Yeah. And hey, the, the Power Five is not even immune here. Mm-hmm. Stanford dropped 11 sports. Iowa which competes in the Big Ten. No conference in America makes more money than the Big Ten. Iowa has cut four sports. Stanford is the, the gold standard of broad-based athletic departments and, and cut 11. So William & Mary is hardly alone here. Yeah, it's a sign of the times, but on a more bright note, a brighter note, we do have sports back. We have sports to talk about. Um, we're appreciative of that, and we're looking forward. I know I am, David. I know you are. We're looking forward to these football games. No question, man. We'll, we'll break them down next week. Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to Teal and Barber on Apple Podcasts by finding the RTD Podcast channel. And please consider supporting local journalism with an online subscription to the Times-Dispatch. You can find special promotional offers available at richmond.com. Today's show was produced by Dean Hoffmeyer. Teal and Barber is a podcast of the Richmond Times-Dispatch and richmond.com. For David Teal, I'm Mike Barber. Thanks for listening. Be healthy and safe. And please join David and me again next week.